I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to our webpage at ithinkthereforeifan.com. That's all one word. Click on the link that says donate and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss A Simple Favor, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Twin Peaks. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Today's episode is on Twin Peaks and philosophy. Twin Peaks was a show created by David Lynch and Mark Frost. The first season aired in 1990. At that point, in the early 90s, it had two seasons before it eventually got canceled, but it kind of became a cult hit. And recently, uh, there's been a re-emergence of Twin Peaks in the form of the 2017 Showtime limited series, Twin Peaks The Return. Right, and worth pointing out that in between there, there was the movie, the prequel, Firewalk With Me, and a handful of other um, associated projects. It starts out as sort of a, a detective-seeming show, right? You think you're going to get, like, it starts begins with a dead girl, and there's an FBI agent in town to investigate the death, uh, but then it quickly becomes something different altogether. I think, really, Twin Peaks moved from being a detective sort of noir genre show to being a piece of surrealist art, and in particular, that's true by the time you get to the return. Uh, There are lots of non-linear plot points. There are ways that Agent Cooper goes about trying to solve these crimes that are non-standard detective practices. And it's in the real world, they aren't practices that we would think could ever actually catch a criminal. Uh, There are giants that, that can predict the future. There's a lady who talks to a log and it's unclear whether the log He's yeah, actually talking. <laughs> the, the log definitely talks. I mean, we don't have any evidence of that whatsoever, but it's a, a better world for me to live in if I believe that Twin Peaks it's had a, a talking, talking log. log. A talking so I'm going to go with it. Like seemingly omniscient log. The, the lady does seem to know stuff, right? right? And she it's... claims to get it from the log. Maybe the lady's omniscient and delusional. <laughs> right, maybe, maybe. Love the log lady. All right, so... Um, Last year, we had the good fortune of um, editing a collection of essays on Twin Peaks um, for a book that we put out um, just recently called Twin Peaks and Philosophy. That's damn fine philosophy. Um, There's a a number of contributors to the edition, and in today's episode, we talked to four of them. So we have Lee Kolb, Peter Roseberry, Veronica McMullen, and Rob Luzecki, right? And so they um, talk about um, you know, some of the issues, the philosophical issues that come up in Twin Peaks. They, they certainly don't run the gamut. Um, this, you know, series and the corresponding movies are just chock full of really good philosophy. And, and you know, there's, there's a great number of issues to explore. But this will give you a sense of the, um, the you know, sort of range of it. Uh, we didn't want them to come on and just talk about their chapters um, because we're operating on the assumption that all of our listeners have already purchased the book <laughs> and read it cover to cover. Um, so instead, we chose some interesting topics um, from their sort of general area of expertise that we wanted to explore. And then we hit them with some really tough questions. Um, so let's um, turn now to to the interviews. And then, of course, after that, we'll be back with the um usual things, the, the listener musings and what we're liking this week and, and um, the rest of the show. One theme that Twin Peaks explores right from the beginning, and a theme that's front and center in the detective and noir genre, 
is the theme of the dead or missing woman, and in particular, the dead or missing young woman. Um, throughout Twin Peaks, you see that young women are front and center as main characters, but these young women kind of come across like they're perpetually in danger. Uh, and then in the, when we get to the return, we see exploration of female characters uh, in their in their sort of older versions of themselves. Um, and so there are interesting issues pertaining to gender to explore here. We've brought one of our authors from Twin Peaks and Philosophy in to talk about some of these gender issues. We're going to talk to Lee Kolb. Lee teaches English at East Central College in Missouri. She's contributed to volumes in the Open Court series such as Sons of Anarchy in Philosophy, Breaking Bad in Philosophy, and Amy Schumer in Philosophy. And she's also written for Vulture and Bitch Magazine. Hi, Lee. Hi, Lee. Hi. All right, we'd like to start by asking you to provide your thoughts on the trope of the dead or dying girl. Yes. So this is a kind of long-running trope that I think in some commentary, Laura Palmer is often seen as the one who started it all in television, this idea of the dying girl being such an important plot point. But in reality, that started a long time ago in literature and, you know, 18th century, 19th century pop culture. Um, so from the Edgar Allan Poe quote that I talk about in my chapter of this like perfection of the dying or dead girl in the Victorian era, that the perfect woman was in many ways seen as a dead or dying girl. Um, in, in fashion, the thinness, the kind of pale skin, it's went from, you know, literature to fashion to the pop culture of that time. And so we see that still today, the, the dead and dying girl being someone who needs to be saved, someone who has those, um, quote, beautiful features and is very passive. And it can take all sorts of forms in pop culture from fiction to the news media. Okay, well, what, so... Do you think what do you think it's useful for David Lynch to use this trope or do you think it's a trope that ought to be avoided what what sorts of like normative judgments should we make about the use of this trope I think that the use of this trope um much like I think the use of any trope is it is it done well is it done with complexity and commentary or is it just used um to be a spectacle for voyeurism. And I think that David Lynch uses it in a very, and Mark Frost uses it in a very complex way. I think that Laura Palmer as the dead girl trope, um, the, that she is, that, that we're privileged of learning her backstory and learning a lot about her as a complicated character. So we do get to hear and know her voice and her story. I think that is what makes it well done and useful. Um, I think that if she was just an object, a plot point, um, we didn't get to know anything about her or kind of understand her story, then I think that that would be a very kind of unfortunate use of the right. trope that is very objective. Okay, great. So you, you also explore themes of creation and destruction and femininity and masculinity in your chapter. Can you, can you tell us about that? Um, so I look a lot um, at, in terms of creation and destruction, looking at some of Hannah Arendt's writings and thinking post-World War II. And while she doesn't talk explicitly about the nuclear bomb, obviously, you know, the iconic episode eight shows us so much about the Twin Peaks universe and ourselves and how the nuclear bomb in our culture, in our world, in our society um, what that launched, and also in the Twin Peaks universe, how it launched the evil and the goodness that we see um, dominating the story of the Twin Peaks universe. And I think that creation is often, in, in my commentary, woven in with femininity and birth, literally and figuratively. And I think that there's a lot of birth imagery, especially in um, The Return in season three. And how, 
beautiful we often see that to be, but also how destruction um, can come from birth um, and how oftentimes violent imagery is woven in with um, natality and birth and how something very destructive can give birth to something else. Um, So I think that we see a lot of that, again, especially in the return, but when you rewatch the entire series in the film, you see all of these pieces just so beautifully coming together about this commentary on um, the modern world. And I think that how gender comes into this when we look at modernity and the modern world in general, how post-World War II, post-bomb, in this kind of manufactured, quote-unquote, uh, world we live in, where um, gender roles have kind of doubled down from the 1950s on, even though um, we have less and less need for them and they're more and more clearly uh, manufactured, I think that um, the Twin Peaks universe plays with that as well, the manufactured nature of um, gender roles in our society. And I, I really think that throughout, from season one till now, um, Lynch and Frost really kind of elevates what we consider to be kind of the feminine in terms of compassion and caring and even the male characters who embody that. Um, so, yeah, I think that there are some interesting parallel things going on there. All right. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank great. you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. As we were speaking with Lee on the topic of the trope of the dead or dying girl, I was thinking about whether we get any sort of resolution is Lynch pushing us in a direction where we should adopt a certain attitude toward gender roles. And I really think, you know, I agree with Lee that the trope is being used well in this case. Uh, but I think it's important to, to highlight, too, and it'll be interesting to discuss this idea that there, Lynch isn't offering us a- Aesop's fables here. We're not being given a story which has a moral at the end. Right, right. Uh, in fact, it seems like we're kind of living in a valueless... Sisyphean universe here uh, where it's just the the events that are taking place are cyclical um, and people are the characters are involved in absurdist struggles right there's no fundamental meaning to it all it just continues to cycle so like in Camus myth of Sisyphus where Sisyphus is tasked by the gods to push a boulder up to the top of a hill just to watch it roll back down and have to engage in the endeavor over and over again. That that seems to be what we're getting in Twin Peaks. Right. And you get that a lot with David Lynch. Um, so, you know, there, there is some value there, but we're not being taught any values or pushed in a direction. I, I think it's what you were saying a moment ago that, you know, and in David Lynch's various universes, um, everything's just kind of surreal and weird and uncomfortable and, and some of it's ugly. Um, I'm thinking Eraserhead here or mm-hmm. something, but some of it's kind of beautiful in its ugliness, also thinking Eraserhead. Um, the the ending of The Return, right, there's a number of interpretations of, of what happened there. Um, but, but the facts are um, that Agent Cooper and Diane go back to Twin Peaks and it's possibly them or possibly their doppelgangers. And you hear a scream, right? And presumably it's the exact same scream you hear at the beginning of season one, right? Laura Palmer, um, just as she's being killed. And so there is this sort of um, myth of Sisyphus-esque kind of quality, right? Where maybe what you're supposed to think there is, you know, no matter what, this is just going to happen again over and over and over. I mean, they went to all that trouble. Dale Cooper you know, spent 20-some-odd years in the, the Black Lodge um, waiting to, to come back to possibly try to prevent it, and it was inevitable. It, it couldn't help but happen. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, there's a sort of popular understanding of Nietzsche's doctrine of eternal recurrence where um, on, on one interpretation, you know, we're just doomed to live everything um, each life over and over again, right? Everything that happens will happen um, multiple times, right? And, infinite and times. Infinite times, yeah. And so some people take this as, as sort of an instantiation of that, right? A little snippet of, 
Uh, again, the popular conception of Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. It's interesting too. Uh, I think that you have your first, the first two seasons taking place in the early '90s, and then there's the resolution. There is, if you want to call it resolution at all, is very odd and off-putting, and so you know, viewers and cultish fans may well have thought, oh, we're finally going to get the resolution to this whole story and far from it, right? In fact, it seemed like Lynch was maybe intentionally providing a lack of resolution. Yeah, yeah, it makes it all worse. And so what started as, you know, kind of a parody of a soap opera um, that included a parody of a soap opera in the show, right? Um, Sort of the... Twin Peaks is the the big play out of the small screens return to love um, just descends into complete chaos. So this is a nice transition into uh, our discussion with Rob Luzecki. We had a chance to sit down with Rob and talk to him about uh, the extent to which Lynch's work here qualifies as art and why we should think of it as uh, not just as a work of art, but as a superlative work of art. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about Rob. Rob is a lecturer at Purdue Fort Wayne. He's contributed numerous chapters to various pop culture and philosophy volumes and co-edited along with Charlene Ellsby, a volume on Amy Schumer and philosophy. I'm sure we have some Amy Schumer fans out there. Hey, Rob. Hi, Rob. Hello. So we wanted to ask you about uh, Twin Peaks as a work of art. So it's uh, Twin Peaks and, and the work of David Lynch in general is quite unlike other television shows that you see that are, are fairly linear. And in this sense, it might more, it might more strongly resemble uh, various forms of modern art. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about different philosophical models of what art is? Sure, I could. Uh, first of all, uh, the claim that uh, David Lynch's uh, TV show is a work of art um, even that is sort of in dispute. Like, some people don't even recognize it as such. I am a strong proponent of the claim that it is a work of art and that it is an excellent work of art. Um, now, the one philosophical model that immediately comes to mind is uh, that of Gadamer. And Gadamer said that uh, a work of art basically is in a relation with the spectator. So, like, the work of art needs completion by the spectator. This is how a work of art expresses, um, by giving certain signs to the person who's viewing it, and then the person who's viewing it essentially completes those signs, gives meaning to those signs. And Anything that does that is a work of art for Gadamer. Does uh, David Lynch's uh, show fulfill that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's sort of abstract um, like nonlinear, as you mm-hmm. say, uh, is just further evidence that it is doing precisely this give and take relation, that it's making the viewer work harder. Uh, now, this claim uh, that the work of art must uh, make the viewer, the spectator, work harder, uh, must uh, shatter their perceptions. Well, that, that claim uh, goes back to what Picasso was saying about a work of art, uh, it's precisely not supposed to make you feel comfortable. It is supposed to unsettle you. So um, the more it unsettles you, the more of a work of art it is by that logic. Uh, Heidegger had similar things to say about it. Um, but the person, I think, who is even who says this best is Ingarden in his own Roman Ingarden, the Polish phenomenologist, uh, who says in his ontology of the work of art, look at the work of art is that which demands completion by the viewer, demands uh, that the viewer participate with it. And in that participation, in the viewing of the show, in the reading of the text, in the observation of the painting, uh, you form a, a sort of unity with it. And that is precisely the work of art. 
of shows like Twin Peaks and the entirety of David Lynch's work, uh, demanding that the viewer's constant attention to it, uh, demanding the viewer's constant attention to it really makes it a superlative, not only a work of art, but a superlative work of art. Uh, All right, I'll be honest with now, you. I, I don't know yeah. that in my own case I've... Uh, I, I don't know that in my own case I have any idea what was going on in The Return. Um, d- is it, does it matter if the viewer um, feels like they're not able to successfully complete or adequately engage the story? Uh that they that they're that sure. they, they don't have a successful interpretation. Um, that there's yeah, I and uh, Rachel, I share your view. Like there were <laughs> there were episodes in uh, in Twin Peaks where I'm like, what was that? And I just saw how does this fit into the plot at all? But, is this Agent Dale Cooper? Is this his doppelganger? I don't even know. And <laughs> but before you, you know, go further. Yeah. I'd, I'd just like to say I understood every second of it, but I'm not inclined to sure. reveal any of okay, that you're understanding. You're the only person on the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to keep it to myself. But yeah, it was, it was obvious. <laughs> oh, Rich, Richard, you're sitting on a gold mine there. We pay like there are people who would pay a lot of money to hear what this actually meant. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't we don't want to draw too much attention to this because there's some chance I was lying. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we were just completely okay. bewildered the last um, you know. Four or five episodes, and I was reading, um, you know, summaries online after, and various interpretations, and and even with the 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 aids, you know, the study aids, um, it still wasn't all adding up for me, you know, at least not in the way the first two seasons did. Sure, uh, it was much more uh, perplexing, much more vexing the the third uh, season. Now, the does that uh, cut against its nature as the nature of the work of art, its status as a work of art, the fact that it just befuddles people? Uh, I don't think so. That is uh, the completion of it. The work of art, to use uh, Rachel's term, and that's a great term, you know, is basically we do know what is going on. Like, I remember the one episode which perplexed me most was uh, the nuclear explosion, the episode that right. had the nuclear explosion <laughs> in too. it. Like, that, yeah, I was like, just like, what's going on there? But I did know it was a nuclear explosion. Right, uh, right. Did, you know, like, so it, and I, the bigger, then the question is, well, how does the plot hold together? And how, do, what is it saying about the nature of reality? And it causes a question uh, to be, to echo throughout the viewership. And as long as that question is out there and people are constantly debating uh, and talking about what exactly Twin Peaks was, as long as that question happens, and is answered and a discussion is being is taking place as long as podcasts like this are happening that work of art is being kept alive that work of art is functioning like so the befuddlement that we might have about works of art uh, how the plot actually works as long as we have that befuddlement and attempt to answer that question uh, as a community, as long this is the give and take of the work of art as a physical object and the viewership, and as long as there's that give and take transpiring, as long as the story is being discussed, that work of art is alive. So a direct answer to the question that Rachel posed is, okay, if we are befuddled, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about it. As long as we are talking about it, it is a work of art, and it is a living, uh, functioning work of art. So the befuddlement of the work of art, that the work of art causes, the confusion that it causes, is what makes it really an excellent work of art, I think. Great. Awesome. Th- thanks so much, Rob. Um, we appreciate you talking to us. Okay. Well, I... I 
thank you guys both for the wonderful opportunity. And this podcast is really an amazing idea. Uh, oh, it's great work. Oh, yeah, nice. I, nice of you to say so. Tune in. Oh, thanks so yeah, much. <laughs> we agree. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity again, Richard and Rachel. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. You too. Cheers. All right. Well, that was really fun. It's always nice to talk about art. Um, a couple of things that, that Rob said sort of struck me. So one, there was the, the question, you know, whether Twin Peaks is art. And, and he suggested that that's controversial, that some people think that it's not art. And he didn't really go into that. So as he was talking, I was sort of thinking about what would it take for that to come out on somebody's view of art as not being art, right? I mean, it's, it's um, somebody's artistic creation. It's presented in a certain way. Um, but then lots of things um, that, that are television programs, I would suspect, aren't art, right? They may be um, something like money-making ventures and things like that. Let's, let's have a soap opera, sell lots of advertising time, get people hooked in, and so forth. Um, and while there's certain soap opera-esque elements to Twin Peaks sort of by design, that's, that's part of the art. I mean, I really think to make that case, you just need to be taking a very highbrow um, view of what counts as art. At least in, in some cases, right, the, the point of certain kinds of um, or certain works of art is that the art's particularly not about anything and by design requires nothing from the, the viewer um, on account of the fact that there's nothing there for the viewer to engage. It, it's, it's purposely a rejection of those sorts of approaches to art. Um, so it might just be some kind of nonsense, it might even be very aesthetically pleasing nonsense. But it's intentionally nonsense and any attempt to sort of complete it misses the point. But then that pushes on this philosophical question about whether there is a point. Like, is, does, is the nature of the art determined by the artist? Or is there, is there no real answer to the question about what the nature of the art is? Is the nature of the art subjective somehow and that it depends on the person? So can a person get it wrong? Right, right, yeah. Um, you, you can certainly be out of step with what the artist intends, but that's a whole separate issue. Um, we should do a, a podcast on what is art and um, explore this further. Sure. Our next guest is Veronica McMullen. Veronica brings an interesting perspective to the podcast today. She's an undergraduate student at Southern Utah University. She's studying philosophy, strategic communications, and German. And she co-wrote a chapter uh, for our Twin Peaks and Philosophy book with her professor, uh, Dr. Christopher Phillips. Hi, Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Hi, guys. So uh, we have one main question for you that we want to ask. So uh, Twin Peaks, I think it's fair to say, is a pretty unusual place. Uh, a lot of stuff <laughs> that goes on there is not stuff that happens in reality, right? So um, yeah. in, your, in your chapter of our book, you talk about uh, the paradox of fiction. And I'm wondering yeah. if you can explain that concept and uh, tell us how you think it applies to Twin Peaks and how we respond to, to, to Twin Peaks. Yeah, so... Um... The paradox of fiction is concerned mainly with how we experience connections with things or people that don't physically exist. Um, like in the case of Twin Peaks, like the entire town doesn't exist. Like the uh, and Agent uh, Cooper, he is he's someone that we react to. We have uh, an emotional connection to, and yet he doesn't physically exist. And that's kind of what the paradox of fiction is going after. It's just like, how how can we have this experience when it concerns something that doesn't physically exist? And my chapter focuses, uh, mine and Chris Phillips' uh, chapter focuses on abstract artifacts and how we interact with those characters because they do exist in a sense. And... Um, so Amy Thomason, a philosopher, uh, contemporary philosopher, she, in her book, uh, Fiction and Metaphysics, she dives into this thing where, like, we can talk about these fictional characters as if they're real because they do, in fact, exist. 
as abstract artifacts. While we as humans are concrete, we take up space. And so we can we can interact with these characters without without like explicitly saying like they do exist. Oh, interesting. Um, great. Well, thank you very much. We, we enjoyed having you in the collection, and um, it, it's nice to actually talk to you over the phone. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. So the, the paradox of fiction is something that, that I found interesting um, for a long time and in sort of a variety of ways. So um, Veronica was talking about, um, you know, why do we care about these characters in certain ways? Why do we feel emotionally attached? Um, when we're aware that they don't exist, there's there's plenty of other versions of this um, that that are also kind of fun. So Noel Carroll's done a lot of really interesting work on the paradox of horror, which is just a variation on this theme, right? Why are we frightened by um, vampires and zombies and ghosts and witches and things like that um, when we're at the movies or reading a scary book um, when we know full well those things don't exist? Um, and, you know, maybe we can take it one step further in, in recent decades and say, you know, I'm watching something and I know that the thing I'm seeing on the screen is CGI. And yet, you know, I manage sometimes I don't actually get frightened, but I manage to sort of be on the edge of my seat. Um, in my forthcoming book on spoilers, I talk about another sort of variation on this theme, right, which I'm calling the paradox of spoilers. So, um, you know, with, with some books and some programs... Um, the, the plot really hinges, you know, the, the success of the, the plot hinges on some big twist or a surprise ending. And yet, even when people know those sorts of things, um, they will go back and read the book over and over again or watch the show or the movie over and over again. Um, yeah, a good example of this is how many times have we seen Murder on the Orient Express right. You know, dozens, right? Or the, the, the Harry Potter books. Yeah, yeah. So the, I think like the 1970s version with, with Albert Finney, um, mm-hmm. right? And Murder on the Orient Express is is something that, that hinges on one very interesting surprise twist. Um, but my enjoyment of it hasn't diminished over the years knowing that, right? So um, it's a good question. Why do we engage with film, literature, um, television, plays, etc.? the way we do, knowing the things we know about them. Yeah, and I think that Twin Peaks poses a particularly powerful version of this general philosophical problem or issue because it, the stuff that takes place in Twin Peaks just couldn't happen. I mean, it's it's a metaphysical mess, you know? Mm-hmm. We've got weird... In The Return, there's this weird tree-looking flesh thing that imparts wisdom like that all these elements are just so bizarre an atomic bomb test that gives rise to a paranormal demon (laughs) oh just bizarre so so and yet i i found myself in the case of dale cooper feeling really devastated for him that he was trapped in this place for 25 years and then when when the return happened and you found out he doesn't get any of it back there's no sort of ultimate justice for Dale Cooper. It's just cyclical and it's, he, he's trapped in this ugly pattern forever. Uh, and I, I feel intensely for him, even though this is a scenario that could never happen. Maybe we can work up the empathy for it. Right. Well, one of his doppelgangers, right, Dougie's this sort of blithering idiot. Um, you know, it's, it's almost to be ridiculed, right? Dale Cooper comes into Twin Peaks and he's sophisticated. He's an FBI guy. He's, he's suave. He's worldly, you know, and then you get Dougie, who doesn't know the right direction to stand in the elevator. Right? So it's just, this He's been reduced kind of, to something he would never have yeah, wanted to become. Yeah. This is sort of poor fool. Another interesting philosophical question that comes up in Twin Peaks concerns the nature of good and evil. And we have seemingly these two lodges that represent both sides, although that's a matter of interpretation and I don't know if I have that right, but, uh, and we've got characters like Bob and Wyndham Earl and where we see kind of clear pictures of evil characters. And then we've got characters like Dale Cooper on the other side of the spectrum. Perhaps Uh, Lucy. (laughs) 
We have a great guest here with us today to discuss this topic. Peter Brian Roseberry is the Finkbeiner Endowed Professor of Ethics at Saginaw Valley State University. He's the author of Evil and Moral Psychology and The Fiction of Evil, in addition to multiple articles in ethics and social and legal philosophy. Hello, Peter. Hi, Richard. Good, right? Hello. Hi, right. Rachel. Go ahead, Rachel. Okay, so um, the first question we want to ask you uh, has to do with evil. There are lots of different accounts of what evil is, both in pop culture and in the history of philosophy. What are your thoughts about the nature of evil in Twin Peaks? I think one of the things that's so central to Twin Peaks, and one of the reasons it, it really is my favorite show, is because this notion of evil is so very at the center of it. And in a way that seems like an obvious observation, because there are these very obvious kind of evil forces at work in the form of the Black Lodge um, and its manifestations and characters like Bob. But we kind of miss something if we only focus on those elements of evil that are at work in Twin Peaks. There's plenty of examples of perfectly ordinary human evil, the kind of banal sort of evil that people like Hannah Arendt were interested in. Um, that's the stuff in a lot of ways that's sort of more familiar and perhaps a bit less boring, but in a lot of ways the kind of canonical example of evil people and evil actions that we can focus on, if only because they're the ones that we can actually do something about. So it's the evil characters um, who can go to jail that we can actually sort of stop their efforts. It's those evil people who kind of corrupt relationships and make things go terrible for the innocent people of Twin Peaks that we can actually do something about. Um, the Black Lodge doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Bob seems to be this kind of permanent force um, that escapes our clutches. But focusing on that really kind of abstract metaphysical stuff, um, you know, I think Dale Cooper is a really good example of how we ought respond to it. You, you're sort of aware that it's there. You fight it in its various forces, but you never kind of forget that maybe your first job is to combat the very human evil that we're more likely to encounter. All right. So we do see uh, exemplars in this small town of both virtue and vice. Uh, and in your paper for our book, you say you give some examples of that. Could you provide some here? Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really great to talk about when we're talking about virtue and vice um, and virtuous and vicious characters is that it's really kind of rare to find plausible examples of, say, virtuous or vicious people that are just completely virtuous or vicious across the board. And again, I think characters like Dale Cooper, um, but also Harry Truman and lots of other folks, you know, these are clearly brave, courageous, just individuals but they're flawed in particular kinds of ways, right? We see Coop being maybe a little overcommitted to the pursuit of law mm -hmm. um, to the point where his own personal relationships are kind of weird, right? Um, yeah. So even the heroes um, have their flaws in interesting kinds of ways, which is sort of evidence of just how difficult it is to be a perfectly virtuous person, even if one can develop particular uh, virtues um, to the extreme. Um, it's a bit, and you know, there's plenty of vicious people like that as well. I think Ben Horn is a great example of this, right? He's right. he's absolutely ruthless and unlikable early on, but through an encounter um, with the fellow whose name I am presently forgetting, he was Audrey Horn's first lover. He was played by Billy Zane. Right. Okay. Um, we'll edit it in. <laughs> thank you, Mike. You know who I'm talking about, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Was it Jet? Anyway, um, you know, under his influence, he has this sort of kind of weird fetish for the good and becoming a good person. But that's at least some kind of improvement in his character. He stops smoking cigars and starts chewing on carrots. I thought that was kind of cute. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's that's something, again, a very human character who's terribly flawed, but not necessarily irredeemable and maybe even as commendable. There's some characters that do seem beyond the pale, right? So Wyndham Earl being the most obvious example. Um, he has some non-moral virtues like intelligence and cleverness and maybe a few others. Um, he does seem to be one, though, that's so cripplingly beyond the pale that we're sort of less sure what there is uh, to say about him that's redeemable. But also a reason I think he's a really good plausible example of an evil character in Twin Peaks. 
All right, you make a claim that some listeners might find kind of surprising, and that Bob isn't the most evil entity in the Twin Peaks universe. Can you explain why you think that, and who you so, think is? Absolutely. So I would act. I would actually want to say I think that Bob is not the best example of an evil entity, um, and and part of that has to do less with ethics and more kind of a view about metaphysics and maybe conceivability and possibility. There, there's um, one of the great things about the return um, or season three, I guess, whatever the different Twin Peaks fans want to call it, is that we do kind of get an origins story from Bob. Right. It it seems like he was the product of this even more powerful kind of background evil force that's operative, that he was the spawn of some kind of horrible human event having to do with a, the testing of a nuclear bomb or something. But mm-hmm. he's so weird right i mean he's so (laughs) it's he's so unhuman that it's i'm not sure that we understand him all that well i mean what exactly is he after what what motivates him what um he's obviously got human-esque tendencies if for no other reason than he seems to have sexual appetites and he takes human form but i don't know that we understand him at all within Within the metaphysics of possibility, I don't know that we could say that Bob is really even possible um, in the way that we might want to say that other kinds of non – in the way that, you know, obviously Dale Cooper's um, not real either. But I think we can understand him because he's so human. Bob is so far afield from anything that we understand that I'm just not sure we understand him well enough to make a lot of positive claims about him. I'm not sure that oh, I understand the show well enough to make any positive claims. Well, fair enough. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, yeah, and that's you know that's one of the things that's so compelling. If this was just a soap opera drama, in it would just be a very well written soap opera. But because there are these very obvious kind of transcendent metaphysical things going on, it just becomes all the more fascinating, entertaining. Um, for my money, the character that is the best example of an evil person is is Wyndham Earl. Um, he's he's so clearly vicious. He's so clearly lacking in any recognizable human sympathies. He's so willing to not just sacrifice human beings, although he is, but the very best kinds of human beings, um, the Annies and the Dale Coopers in his pursuit of a manifestly evil goal. Um, human beings like that we're a little more able to understand given um, those very vicious and wicked tendencies. So for me, if for no other reason than because we, we can kind of get a better grip on Wyndham Earl than on Bob, I'm more inclined to look to Wyndham as a really paradigmatic example of an evil person. Bob is fascinating and terrifying, just too weird to do much with, I think. Great, great. All right. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate your um, your talking to us. And, uh, Absolutely. Uh, wonderful. Yes, wonderful. thanks so much. Yeah. Cheers. Okay. I look forward to hearing the podcast. Great. I was noticing that Peter's remarks about Windermerl and Bob and the way we should understand evil in each case tracks my attitudes toward horror films. So now I love all kinds of horror films, but when I was younger and first I was first starting to love horror, um, I didn't like monster movies, and I didn't like movies where, say for example, the house itself was possessed and it was possessed by pure evil. Mm-hmm. So Peter mentioned that Bob might be a metaphysical impossibility, that it's not even clear that we know anything about Bob or can make any positive assertions about the nature of Bob. Right. If this were a sci-fi thing, all the science fiction fans would be climbing. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And that'd be a deal breaker for a lot of them. Right. But this idea that you would be something, anything could be possessed by pure evil. almost seems like a category mistake in some way because something that's evil makes choices, right? Right, That you make evil choices or virtuous choices uh, but something can't be made of pure evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always was scared of early on, well, not scared, but enjoyed uh, <laughs> things like slasher movies, serial killer movies, because there you had, first of a being that seems like it genuinely could exist. So that's the kind of thing you might be scared of if you're walking out 
outside late at night or something. Um, but also that it seems scarier somehow that the that the entity would choose. Right, right. So in the other case, the if there's some pure evil thing and it essentially doesn't have free will in virtue of its evil, that's in a lot of ways about as scary as a, a tree falling on you or something right. in a big storm, whereas this other kind of thing might... The slasher is the great example of this. They don't like you for some reason. Maybe you wandered onto their property or maybe you're just younger and more attractive than they are, but they're going to get you and, and they're going to do everything they can to, to get you. Yeah, and I think about it like the way you might be afraid of, say, being attacked by a lion... Mm-hmm. You'd be afraid of the lion because because you know what the lion's motivations are, uh, and they're pretty simple, right? But I'm tasty. When, <laughs> I get it, yeah. But when you're dealing with, say, like something, a being that is capable of a, a higher degree of, you know, rational capacity, mm-hmm. uh, like, like a human or, or something like that, that, that could have a more complex psychology, that's scarier. And it seems like these... These metaphysical entities where it's stipulated they are pure evil, they can't possibly have very complex psychologies because they are headed in one and only one direction and they're not unpredictable. Although Bob is pretty unpredictable, but that's not in virtue yeah. of being evil. That's just in virtue of being very odd. Yeah, and what we don't know much about Bob and what we do know is, is kind of a weirdness. So what are we liking this week? Well, it's been a busy week. We haven't had as much time to consume pop culture as we might otherwise have. Uh, But we did get a chance to go to the movies. We saw a movie called A Simple Favor, starring Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively. Yeah, fantastic. It's a a dark comedy. Um, Didn't know too much about the movie going in, other than it was pretty well received. Um, Don't want to give too much away. Um, No spoilers, because it's it's still in the theater. but I will say that it reminded me a lot of um, the very best Coen Brothers films, right? The way the characters were portrayed and the various twists and turns to the plots, the way that the comedy was doled out, right? It was just, it was a very satisfying couple of hours, yeah. complete package. And we recommend it. It's time again for listener musings. This week's music comes from Dane. Dane writes, Twin Peaks has a fixation on dreams, and what about them can be used in the waking world. Agent Cooper, most of all, is concerned with his dreams. He has a perspective I don't believe many people have about dreams, and that they can be just as real as the waking world. He even has a hard time distinguishing what is a dream and what is reality. To me, this makes sense. His dreams are very vivid and involve his sense experience. To him, there is not much difference between the two, aside from the dream world being just a bit more strange. Messages can even be passed from the future to the past in the world of Twin Peaks. Dreams don't just have effects in Twin Peaks, but in real life as well. If one has a dream about having a relationship with someone they have feelings for only to wake up without them, it can be hard to get back to a place of equilibrium. This sort of idea is also expressed in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Inner Light, in which Captain Picard lives a long, tragic dream life in a dream that only lasts 20 minutes in the real world. He wakes up with a lifetime of experience, the loss of a family he loved, and the destruction of society as well. Do you think that dreams are closer to reality than our society tends to see them? Or are they random experiences to keep separate from our waking lives? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting, Dan. Good questions. So um, I loved reading this as as an epistemologist, right? These aspects of of Twin Peaks were just a dream. There's this sort of skepticism is, you know, dream life, um, real life and so forth. Um, There's all this stuff about truth conduciveness, right? All of Agent Cooper's crazy ways of deriving at the truth, right? Throwing rocks at bottles and things like this and accessing dreams are very non-standard and makes for um, sort of a lot of fun. To, to directly answer your question, no, no, dreams are just um, as we normally think they are. Um, but part of the fun of Twin Peaks is is entertaining the idea that yeah. they you know tap into some other reality or there's, there's much more to them then meets the back of the eye lid. <laughs> you have the opportunity to suspend your disbelief and 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 believe in Agent Cooper's uh, unusual methods of solving crimes. I mean, I think that what... I think I, I agree with you that the answer to Dane's question is 
no, there's not more to them metaphysically. Mm-hmm. That would be my take too. But I think, you know, so wh- what, it, what it is exactly that dreams are doing or wh- how dreams work is an empirical question. Right. right. Uh, that's a question for science to answer. Um, and I don't, I think the answer of, the answer to the question, what are dreams for? This is just my opinion here, but uh, they're not for anything, right? Mm-hmm. They're just physical occurrences. Um, they don't have any more meta- metaphysical meaning than that. But they can, that said, they can be useful. They can help us work out our problems, sort out our feelings. I apparently have a lot to work out as far as uh, making sure that I teach a class during the semester. I don't show up the last day having not taught the class all semester. That's my most common yeah, yeah. <laughs> dream. I, I just keep dreaming about cigars and tunnels and trains and <laughs> all that, that Freudian kind of stuff. <laughs> Funny you've never mentioned that to me before. Yeah, it was a secret. <laughs> but I think, you know, so they can be useful because they can help us work out our problems, but they can also be, you know, uh, scary and uh, disorienting. So I don't think they have just one purpose. They have an effect on us. Right, But right, that's not right. by design. Right, and occasionally you do have the sort of rare insight in a dream. Um, I remember when I was writing my dissertation and I was stuck on certain things, um, every now and then I'd sort of dream a good idea. It's like the idea was was wanting to bubble to the surface, um, but my particular psychology was preventing it. And, oh, so and, for and certain me, ideas found a way. For me, every once in a while, a ridiculous idea would bubble to the surface in my dream. I would wake up, while writing my dissertation, right? I would wake up, scroll, scratch the idea down on a pad, go back to sleep, and then I'd wake up thinking I'd solved my the major problems of my dissertation overnight, and then I'd look at the pad and go, oh, man, yeah, <laughs> there's that, nothing to this. That, that happened um, <laughs> a number of times as well, right? So, so the, the, the dream um, life is, is suggesting things to us, most of which are garbage, <laughs> but every now and then, maybe something good. All right. Well, Dane, that was a lot of fun. Um, if you would like to um, contribute to this um, portion of the show, go to our webpage. I think thereforeifan.com. That's all one word. Um, click on where it says contact and there's a little submission form. Um, some people have already submitted some things. We have a, a number to choose from. Um, keep them coming. We want to pick the best ones. Um, and um, perhaps we'll, we'll read yours. Did you have a few thank yous you wanted to issue? Yeah. So this brings us to the end of the of episode two. Um, first of all, thank you to all of you who are listening and who have downloaded the, the podcast the first week and are doing so again. Um, second, I'd like to um, extend a thank you to Aaron Rabinowitz, who um, produces the Embrace the Void podcast. He just sent us a really nice welcome this week. Saying That's welcome. also a philosophy podcast. Yeah, philosophy podcast. So um, Welcome to the world of podcasting, which, which we really appreciate. It was nice. Um, we'd like to thank people who sponsored us um, on Patreon this week, um, Dane Barnes and Rose Proctor. So it was very nice of them to do so. Um, and to our good friends um, who shared our links on social media. That was very much appreciated as well. Yeah, thanks a lot. So that concludes the second episode, and uh, we, we hope you join us for next week's episode, which is going to be on the topic of, of Thanos' actions in Infinity War. We're going to talk about the, the parallels, uh, the, the issues of overpopulation and resource depletion that we face, and we'll talk about the issue of whether there's any moral merit to what Thanos did. So, Wait, we're, we're going to tie that stuff in with Thanos? Oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs>